am so geeked and excited to talk to my friend here, um, DJ Soul Sister, who is just wonderful. Um, if you haven't heard her show, you should listen. So we're going to read her bio, and then we're going to jump in. Known worldwide as the Queen of Rare Group, Soul Sister, a.k.a. DJ Soul Sister, has hosted her Soul Power show on WWOC-FM and Right On Party Situations for nearly two decades in New Orleans. It's one of the longest-running live DJ artists. She's one of the longest-running live DJ artists in New Orleans. The veteran radio programmer and host of the longest running rare groove radio show in the U.S., vinyl collector, crate digger, party promoter, and taste master is highly regarded and respected not only in her hometown but across the globe. And we'll hear some about that um, in a minute. The first DJ to receive a Best DJ Award in New Orleans, Big Easy Entertainment Award and Offbeat, Beats Best of the Beat Award multiple times, not just win it, to win it once, but to win it multiple times. Um, so Sister has thrown down her seamless blend of vinyl-only funk, soul, rare groove, jazz fusion, true school hip-hop sets everywhere in the world, from Jazz Fest to Essence Fest, Voodoo Fest, um, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Austin, and London, anywhere else I'm missing. <laughs> and she was personally invited to George Clinton's, to DJ George Clinton's 71st birthday. And that was in Florida. So that's right. And that was in Florida. <laughs> um, which is interesting. I wouldn't see him as a Florida guy, but yeah. Um, in addition to her party and event promotions and creative DJ set, she is also a tastemaster and recognized authority on funk, soul, hip hop. It's repeating this. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's some new stuff. Um, she's had interviews with musicians like George Clinton, the Ohio Players, and Chuck Brown at the annual New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I remember that show. Um, and she's been in VH1's Rock Docs uh, documentary, and she's been included in books like Dust and Grooves. Um, she's a whole lot of stuff. Like, and this is like a, a shortened version of it, but we're so happy to have you. Well, thanks here. for having me. Happy to have you here. <laughs> and thanks um, everyone for coming out. I know it's cold outside. <laughs> um, I have, we were just listening to one of your sets. Um, and if you could, if you could have introduced yourself with the song tonight, what song would have been? What's your mood like right now? Well, I'm glad you said that because I only play um, music based on on what I'm feeling that night, you know. So, uh, God, but I have to. I kind of have to think about. It. I, I literally don't know. I literally don't know. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. when I do sets, the the funny thing. If it's a long set, like the the you know old hustle parties or anything, I'm doing like two or three hours. 
the only one song that I'll know that I'm going to play going in is the one song. It's the one I think consciously of, and then from there I go. I mean, I bring records. I might have four or five crates with me. I might only get to a quarter of those, but you always bring more than what you need. But I have the one song I know, and then everything is is impromptu from there, or improvisational from there. So with that said, I haven't thought about what I would start tonight. <laughs> I, let me, it'll come to you. Yeah, I'm sure it will come to you. Um, offline, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about uh, a little bit of your background in childhood. Can you talk a little bit about how growing up in New Orleans influenced you, shaped you as a DJ. I know you went to, is it, uh, what school did you, high school did you go to? All well, school? I, I graduated from Cabrini in 1993, but honestly, you know, I sort of envy, not envy, I appreciate the young people in New Orleans who grew up and their parents took them to second lines and, and things like that. My upbringing was not like that at all. I have a very overprotective mother and, you know, I didn't get to go out and play. So my world was, was inside listening to WAIL-FM in the mid-80s and watching the famous disco TV show that came on Saturday nights at you know, 12.30 a.m. or 1.30 a.m., you know, and wishing I was a part of that. You know, that, that's kind of my world. I was inside, so my world was a lot of imagination based on things that I saw coming in, which was lots of music, obviously, but I didn't, I didn't have the external stuff until, until, College, I would say. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, you, did you, when did you go to your first second line? When I was in college, mm -hmm. and and basically, WWOZ, which is the radio station that I've uh, been with, uh, the community radio station, ninety point seven FM. Um, I started doing stuff there when I was a freshman in college. And I was the youngest person there, literally. I was a kid. I was like, you know, shooting from the facts of life. We'd be like all, of, <laughs> all these older people, you know, and they're like, yeah, cute little kid who wants to hang out, you know? Okay, sure. And I would be hanging out with all these older people, and I would roll. I would roll with them. All the other older DJs, you know, I had no business hanging out with them, but I'm like, yeah. This, so that's kind of how I got. Uh, that road was when I started volunteering at WWOZ in college. So what was that first second line like for you? Just curious. Funny thing, I don't remember. I know I probably had a good old time because, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and the second lines are different, I feel, than like everyone used to dance, you know. It wasn't a lot of walking. It was, everyone was moving, you know. Mm -hmm. So that, that was real. Um, that was real, yeah. Um, you talked about not being allowed to kind of partake in, in the fullness of New Orleans culture as a child, second line, things like that. Um, how did your parents and your upbringing inside that house, was there always music playing? I read and I chuckled out loud when I read that um, you had a Fisher Price 
uh, player and you used to kind of mimic being a DJ even as a child. Yeah. Were your parents strict? Did you have a restriction on what music you could listen to and all those things? Well, my parents really had no idea, honestly. Because again, I would do it in my room, you know, to myself or at night when everybody was asleep. And I, I'll, to the Fisher Price thing, it's kind of funny. So I had a Fisher Price record player. Y'all remember the old Fisher Prices? You know, I was supposed to be listening to what Strawberry Shortcake records or Multiplication <laughs> Tables records, and instead, I, you know, my dad had some Gap Band and James Brown records. I'd put, I'd play those things, and I had a Barbie Dream House, right? I had Barbie Dream House, a Barbie pool. I was into Barbie. I was never into baby dolls. I love Barbie. Mm-hmm. So Barbie Townhouse, Barbie McDonald's, everything. I got all of these things together into a complex, and it was a discotheque. <laughs> so <laughs> the Barbies had the discotheque the skipper. She was too young to be yeah. at the disco show. She was managing the McDonald's, which was the snack bar of the disco. And then I would play the Fisher Price records and everyone would be disco. This is me literally dreaming in my head wow. what what I want to do. Wow. And wow. where I want it to be. So you knew early. Very early. Wow. Wow. That you wanted to um, do disco. What was your first album that you owned? Ah, the first record album that I... Mm, that I consciously remember asking for that I got was a record called um, by Cool and the Gang called Music is the Message. Mm-hmm. It's from 1972, and I asked for this record in 1980, which that year Cool and the Gang had the huge hit celebration, right? Mm-hmm. And my dad takes me to a sound warehouse tent sale in Metairie where you know, all of the old, you know, the discounted records that they're trying to get rid of are on sale outside. And I just saw Cool in the Gang, and I'm thinking it's Celebration. I'm like, Dad, I want this record. And I get home, there's no Celebration on this record. Music is the Message is eight years old, you know, <laughs> than, than 1980. But it, the, I love that sound. It was a raw sound, a raw, mm. a raw feeling. That's the first one. Mm. My dad once told me a story that like in 1979, I asked him, it was him and his friends, and apparently I was like, and how old was I in 79? I was born in 75, so I don't know, four or five years old. And I said, Dad, I want Oops Upside Your Head, which is a song by a Gap Band. Mm-hmm. And all his friends fell out laughing. I didn't get the record, but he says that I asked for that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do they feel, your parents, look now that they see you as a DJ? How does that... You can't speak fully for them, but oh, how do they? How have they responded to you being a DJ? That's funny. My my mother, she um, she always thought I'm I'm so different. My mother is a, a retired public school teacher, very straight laced, you know, and I'm like complete opposite of her. So she always will make jokes like, oh, I don't know, you know, where you get all of this, you know, boogie woogie stuff mm-hmm. from. And it comes from my dad's side of the mm-hmm. family, who I didn't really get to know. Mm-hmm. But their their side of the family has that energy for real. <laughs> and um, 
so yeah, she thinks it's fun now because she gets she she says she gets to party with the celebrities and stuff. I mean, you're like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. I was doing Essence Festival, she liked to come and hang out backstage yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And my dad, you know, he he finds it amusing. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. You call yourself DJ Soul Sister, and I, I'm I want to zoom in on the soul part. Um, how do you define soul? I mean, soul to me is soulful feeling because when I describe the music that I like to collect, it's this catch-all term called rare groove. Mm-hmm. Not many people use it anymore, but I still like to use it. Anything soulful, you know, mm-hmm. from I like the period of time, the 70s through the mid-80s and through the 80s and the 60s, anything soulful. So it doesn't have to be just the genre soul, but mm-hmm. funk, underground disco, Brazilian, Afrobeat, um, salsa, anything soulful. Yeah. And then soul is is about feeling. So um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm approaching it from the musical side and also the the ener- energy side. The, the spirit side. Do you think there? You know, I, I I'm looking at that that time frame um, of music that you kind of pivot at. Why do you think that time? Do you think that time frame was the funkiest? Um, the what do you think was happening in music at that time that it was producing this this sound and now the sound that we're just now many times only discovering because of a sample in hip hop or something like that? Why I have gravitated to that period, mm-hmm. I, I, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to say that there's not other music because I listen to music from other time periods and genres too but I, I don't know it's just a personal thing for me now I'm I am fascinated with the 70s and through the mid 80s in particular on a historical level because the 70s is the first decade that you have where people of color are actually getting a taste of some some enjoying some bits of freedom mm-hmm post-civil rights, you know? So in a sense, people are letting their hair down a little more. And that's always interesting uh, to me. That's the first decade where you kind of have that that energy going on. Um, and then there's so many things that come out of that decade. You have hip hop culture come out of that decade. You have go-go culture come out of that decade. Um, Obviously, the funk explosion coming mm-hmm. out of that decade. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so many stories to be told that yeah. aren't told. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You call yourself a crate digger, and I'm interested to hear how you define that, and where do you dig, and um, how often do you dig, and how expensive is the dig? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so crate digging is this term for record diggers. The real essence of crate digging is going into weird <coughs> spots and going f- to find records, rare records, not just, you know, I'm going to go to the 
Barnes and Noble rec bookstop and crate digging. That's not crate digging. Yeah. Crate digging is if you're going in someone's attic and a spider bites you on your path to going through their <laughs> records. Like that's real crate digging. <laughs> I, in my older years, don't do that type of crate digging okay. as much anymore. I used okay. to do it when I was younger. Um, I've been in some interesting places. But the, the crate digging, the, the essence of it is that you're not paying a lot of money for it. So if I say, yeah, I'm going to go on eBay and buy some $100 record, that's not crate digging. you know. But it, in, in recent years, it's come to be a catch-all term for record vinyl record shopping so mm -hmm. it's okay either way but the original uh, meaning of that was literally you're going to weird garage sales like when I was in high school um, I would wake up Saturday morning circle garage sales my dad or my mom would bring me to the garage sales at six, seven in the morning. I'd be there with the other record dealers and they're like, oh, it's a little girl again. I'm like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, weird addicts, weird mm -hmm. situations, I've done them all. Do you know what you're looking for when, you, no. when you're crate digging? No. Is it kind of like, um, maybe I'm a book, digger you know like sometimes I'll go to used bookstores and I'll see a title you know I'll, I'll open the book and I'll look at the publisher or the year um, and I'll just give it a shot it's yeah. kind of like the same thing it's for the you. exact same thing mm -hmm. you know you never go into it like with a list you're just going for the hunt mm -hmm. and you look at records like oh this the, the photo on this album cover something's got to be good on this or yeah. or Look who produces. I didn't know this drummer was on this session. You know, you're just yeah. looking for clues and, yeah. and you just buy stuff. You might not know what it sounds yeah. like. You might get it home, it might be garbage. You might yeah. get it home, it'll be like diamond. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. all um, the mystery of What's it. What's one of the best finds that you, you've ever had? Um, yeah. I was at the UNO Book Fair years and years ago at the UNO Lakefront Arena, mm -hmm. the Symphony Book Fair at UNO Lakefront <laughs> Arena. So, you know, it's huge, like massive floor, nothing but records. And I'd been in there all day, looked through all the boxes, didn't find anything. And I come to the last box, you know, it's filled with like the Neil Diamond Carpenter's records. <laughs> I'm like, oh. And in the middle of all of this, you know, the Barbara Streisand record, I see this record, and it's Roger and the Human Body. Have y'all ever heard of the group Zap before? Yeah. So I picked this up. It's this black cover, and it just pictures this brother with the big afro, and he's smiling. Roger and the Human Body. I'm like, what is this? And I open it. And it's on Troutman Brothers Records. So Roger Troutman is a mastermind of Zap. And I, I, I look more, it's like all these old family photos. I'm like, oh my God. And it turns out, long story short, it's this record from 1976 from Roger Troutman and his family. The first Zap album comes out in 1980. So this was a, a, oh, a, wow. a Dayton, yeah. Ohio, independent press record on Troutman Brothers Records from 1976 before anyone knew who Roger Troutman was. And then I did, I bought it for a dollar. Wow. Did some research, 
people today are selling it for like seven and eight thousand dollars. Whoa! I actually sold my copy. I wish I hadn't sold it. I sold it back in the day for three thousand. Wow. Three thousand. Yeah. Wow. So you know, a few years ago, and I wish I still had it because I like the record. You know. Oh, yeah. What's your favorite album cover? Because you, you got me thinking now, you know, just about album covers. Oh, my Do you God. have one? I, I can't pull one right now, but I've, one of my dreams of all the things that I've done is to have an, a, an art exhibition that, that features wild album covers from my collection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. on my to-do list. Wow, wow. <laughs> I, I would definitely um, come to that. What, in your opinion, what makes a good DJ? In my opinion, someone who feels the feeling, someone who loves the music. Mm. Um, I don't care if they're a digital DJ or all, all mm. on vinyl, but if, if they are a digital DJ using the, the technology of mm -hmm. today to, you know, a great DJ should know the music and use the technology, not let the technology use them. Someone who knows the music, mm -hmm. though. You have to be about music. If you're about mm -hmm. it for any other reason other than love of music, then you just put on the iPod and press play yeah. and not even be there. You have to have a, personal, a personality mm -hmm. element in it for me to really be into it. Can you walk us through um, how you prepare for your shows on Saturdays. My WWOZ yeah, show? I prepare for those a bit differently than, than the live show. So for okay. OZ, I just want to feature what I'm feeling at the moment, honestly, yeah. you know. Okay. And that show's only two hours, mm -hmm. so, and, and there's no mixing involved. So that's, that's, that's easy. You prefer the live over the they're Radio. both two different, two different things. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't choose one over the other. Mm -hmm. Now I will tell you, when I'm 60 years old, I'm not going to be doing a live <laughs> thing. You know, I could do OZ until I'm 80, 90 yeah. years old, because yeah. um, it's not that physical element of yeah. it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because if I'm correct, you don't have a, a crew or anything, you do it all. Yeah. You're, you're a one-woman show, you do it all yourself. Yeah, and that's because when I started, that's what I knew, there were, when I started, it was, there were no other woman DJs. There were no other people wanting to work with, not like I asked, I just didn't know any better. I thought I had to do it myself because Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted to do, but yeah, I do it all myself because um, I've been doing it all myself, and so it involves a lot of physical labor, um, hauling crates mm -hmm. in New Orleans for DJ culture. If you're still doing vinyl, then you bring your own turntables, so, so hauling all of that gear. Um, I'm no longer a mobile DJ. Mobile DJ is when you have your own sound speakers and amplifier. Now, I used to do that. Mm. I don't do that anymore. I don't have to, you know. <laughs> um, but I used to, to, you know, carry around 
heavy speakers and amplifiers and do things like that and records which are heavy and that's four or five crates worth when I did jam cruise a few years ago and I'm gonna do it again in you know a few weeks in January I weighed my crates of records and it was 115 pounds and I took that with me all the way to Jamaica so um, it's a lot of uh, intensive labor, and that's why I go to the gym to mm -hmm. so that I can do it. You know, Will, do you ever see yourself making that technology leap? And will we ever see you with the apple glowing? You know, on the stage? No, no, no. no. <laughs> and people, some of my favorite people, DJs and producers. They joke with me about that. They're like, come on over to the, our side, come to the dark side. And I'm like, no, I just not, it's just not me. And it's not that I have this, you know, um, I'm not a vinyl snob or anything like that. I just love the energy and the process of mixing two records together. I love that. I love it, the feeling of it how that comes about, how you don't even know what's gonna happen. I love that. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is it sometimes, because I've been to a lot of your shows and I can hear, um, kind of reminds me of uh, Jumping Rope a little bit, or like Double Dutch. Like, you know, the groove is happening and then something happens over you. There's a, something happens where you're kind of jumping into that next yeah, song yeah um and it's they're almost talking back to each other the grooves are almost talking back to each other or the bass line or something um so i think that does go back to what you're saying about knowing the music and kind of um not just knowing um how to be a dj but knowing how music is threaded together in yeah. that time and so um, is that how it works for you sometimes? Oh, absolutely. You know, knowing songs. Sometimes I'll mix with keys, you know, mm -hmm. song keys or, you know, just knowing your beats. Just, again, being in control, putting yourself in that mix, you know. Mm -hmm. a, a computer that can mix yeah. BPMs for you, there's no human element in that. There's no emotion in that. You're self-taught DJ, right? Learned it all yourself? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the story is that I was doing WWOZ. I started with OZ in, let's see, I graduated from high school in 93, so by 94 I was on OZ. Wow. Um, wow. Been doing some stuff for several years, and in 97, 96, I met a girl who's still my best friend to this day. And that's a long story how we met. But anyway, <laughs> she was like, you need to do what you do on the radio live, you know, mm -hmm. in the club. And I'm like, well, I actually wanted to do that in high school. And my dad, I asked my dad to buy me some equipment. He did. He bought the wrong kind of stuff. And I just, <laughs> I gave it, you know, I was like, oh, well. Yeah. Um, so I want to, but I don't know how. And she's like, well, my boyfriend's a DJ. He has gear, and I, I work at a bar, and I can promote. And I'm like, oh. And she's the one who, who wow. kind of um, 
pushed me to do it because very shy, didn't want to do it. And her boyfriend literally, so she set up this gig for me. I never DJed anywhere in my entire life in, in a way where I'm mixing things, the real way, the disco mix way. And um, her boyfriend showed me, you know, this is how you turn the mixer on, this is how you turn the turntables on. Very basic rudimentary. I mean, everything else I, I got, you know. So, yeah, I was taught the basics of the yeah. the turntable and the mixer, but the I'm, I feel like I'm blessed because I don't know. Only God is responsible because, mm -hmm. you know, and I did music when I was a kid. I played mm -hmm. instruments and stuff, and I feel that that helps. What instruments did you play? Um, I played piano for several years. My mom forced me into <laughs> violin. Well, no, what happened, I was in second grade, and, and um, there was a really good music program, and I was playing the xylophone, and I said to myself, well, it'll be really pretty if I play, you know, not just the one note, but like, with both mallets, the same note, so I'm playing octaves, and, and the teacher like called my mom and was like, you need to enroll her music classes, like pronto, because mm -hmm. I just picked that up on my own. So they forced me into violin, I didn't like it. I played piano for several, several years, and in high school, I started some lessons for my favorite instrument, which is the bass guitar, mm -hmm. and um, that's what I played. <laughs> You are currently at Tulane, correct? Um, in grad school? I'm a part-time um, part grad school student. I'm a super senior because <laughs> <laughs> I've finished my classes and my thesis process is active. So gotcha. got to keep it moving. <laughs> yeah. um, but you're, you're studying musicology, correct? Is, yeah. that, is that right? Yeah. Um, why now? Why, why did you decide to pursue that? Well, you know, I always say, I've always felt that I love music and I love educating about music and I, I feel like my radio show and my DJ sets and some of the events that I do are towards that. And I just wanted to contribute to the research on black popular music that I didn't see being covered. So I just, you know, there's this, in, in academia, there's this whole world that you don't know about unless you're not in it. This world of yeah. academic journals and academic conferences mm -hmm. and all of this stuff that is closed. So not only am I interested in contributing research to those mm -hmm. things, but I want to be a part of what's called public musicology, which helps to tell stories to people yeah. who may not be in academia. Yeah. You know, just the general public. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's um, as we're sitting here talking, I it is not lost on me that we're sitting in the Mahalia Jackson room, hmm. um, and uh, you know, she didn't have maybe the intellectual capital that um, some people may you know see as as such a value, but. She has been read, uh, written about countlessly, countless times, and um, and having I think people of color write about black music I think is is critical and important, and I think it can often provide a different lens than um, maybe um, some others. Can you talk about 
Um, is it, is it, let me ask you, is it more difficult to write about music than play it? Like, like what is the, are you finding that although you have this knowledge of music, it's still, writing has its own challenges? Um, the struggle for me, right? the struggle for me is to do it, to write in a style of academic writing that they like. And also to, to format in the, you know, whether it's Chicago or <laughs> what, all yeah. of the, the MLA, that's yeah, MLA, um, that, that is the, and the time, and the time to do it. Um, it's not as immediate, mm -hmm. uh, but it is eternal. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm committed to finishing it at some point, finishing my thesis at some point, because it'll be there as a document for the topic that I wanna mm -hmm. to discuss. And I approach the subjects that I write about in the same way that I approach the type of music that I play. I like to focus on bands, artists, genres that may not have been at the top of the charts, you know, very rare, I like mm -hmm. rare things. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so for instance, like Parliament Funkadelic, we talk about, everyone talks about the Mothership Connection, and that's great, the Mothership Landing and all of that. At some point, I wanna do something on the next thing that they did, which was this whole tour where they, they wanted people to feel like they, they were underwater. You know, no one talks about the motor booty, for the underwater thing, it's this whole show where they, it looks like, you know, they had like streamers coming up blue and green where it looked, made them look like they were doing a show underwater. Mm. I mean, there's so many stories about our history, you know, um, and, and I, I love the ones that are told, but instead of telling the same stories, let's, what about this one? I wanna hear those stories I keep getting told, but let's also look at some other ones. So that's where I come in. I don't expect everyone to, to do that. But with that said, if I can do a quick aside, I love the mothership landing parliament funkadelic thing. And I'm doing um, a discussion next month to commemorate the very first ever mothership landing from parliament funkadelic, which a lot of people don't know happened in New Orleans in 1976 wow. at the Municipal Auditorium. And so um, this is gonna happen at Three Keys, this Sunday, December 9th, I'm bringing in their former Minister of Information <laughs> uh, publicist, Tom yeah. Vickers, and we're gonna talk about what that is. So anyway, as we said. Speaking of information, <laughs> and to, to go back to um, all the work that you do as a DJ, the physical work, as I said, you don't have a crew, you don't have a, manager i don't believe or anything like that and you do all your own promotions all your own bookings everything can you that which i think is just amazing can you talk a little bit about the business the dj soul sister business woman or business model that you have um because i think that uh, there was a quote about you from um uh, Natasha Diggs, who I absolutely adore, and um, a, a fellow poet as well, mm. um, where she talks about uh, you have been a, one of the great things about you is you've been able to 
have full control of every aspect of your art and um, you've been able to do it your own way, which not every woman in the music industry can do that. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, honestly, the way that happened was because I didn't know any better, you know? <laughs> I mean, I started doing this thing, and I had to represent myself. No one else um, wanted to. There were a few people when I was very starting out, just starting out, some men, and they were like, yeah, you're going to be the, the male DJ Dave Soul or whatever. And Dave Soul is my brother. Mm -hmm. I love him. But it's like, no, I'm me. So I had to rein that in because, you know, cats would say stuff and I'm like, no, I don't think so. No way. And um, it's just a matter of, of necessity. But, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I wish I could say I had this plan and do it all myself, but there was no one around. I either yeah. did it myself or it didn't happen. Or I either did it myself or it got done wrong. Yeah. Not the yeah. way I, I saw it. Yeah, so <laughs> do, it, do it yourself and be handled the way you want it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, um, you talked a little bit about being a, a, a woman DJ. Um, what are some of the challenges? You, you, you mentioned that a little bit. Also, as a black woman DJ, um, what challenges have you, you faced? You you have that kind of um, double burden, you know. Um. Yeah. Um, it's a man's world in my, in, 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 in what I do. Mm -hmm. um, not just in terms of DJs, but the people who are booking, the mm -hmm. people who are running the clubs, mm -hmm the bar manager, whoever I'm dealing with nine and point nine times out of 10, it is a man. And I'm very direct in what I want, sound, sound people. I mean, I get mansplained a lot, but I don't, I don't have a problem with, with mm -hmm. let, yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. But um, that said, you know, you get labeled as this or that. Hey, call me what you want. I have the results to, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not brand new out here. So, mm -hmm. you know, say whatever you want, but I'm still doing what I, I'm doing. Yeah. And I know how it, it needs to go. But yeah, I've been having a lot of mansplaining problems lately. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Earlier this year, you were spinning at where was it? Um, El, the Mexican. El Patio. El Patio Kitchen. And you got shut down. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you um, about how. Is it different now post Katrina playing live shows and in neighborhoods? Are you seeing any impact or yeah, in effects of gentrification as you as you're doing these, these live shows? And what just what was that 
Um, talk a little bit about that, if you can, if you're willing to. Yeah, well, well here's the thing, you know, so, some context. Hmm. I always talk about New Orleans being a place where music comes from, from the street. And people wanting to be creative, play music, um, show art, have poetry readings. You don't need to be in an official museum or zone club. That's not how it was. If a coffee shop was open, hey, this is a place where we can do our thing. Um, a, a bar and grill. I mean, look at the Mardi Gras Indians having their Indian practice at bars. They don't have to be in, uh, you know, a, a, a live music venue or somewhere zoned for for noise. These things just happen in places of community. A restaurant that just wants added value might, you know, back in the old days, would have entertainment because that's just what you do in New Orleans. Now, I um, started throwing a party at a place called, and people still talk about this party, um, upstairs at Mimi's and the Marini. And the way that happened, Mimi's and the Marini downstairs and upstairs were owned separately mm -hmm. and I had there was someone who used to go to some parties that I threw again in the middle of a neighborhood in a bar that wanted to have some you know stuff going on and they you know that place got shut down for reasons just dealing with whatever was going on there and the girl was like yeah my friend's opening a, 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 a restaurant upstairs above this bar and why don't you throw your parties there and I'm sure why not mm -hmm. and you know after nine years it turned into this thing you'd look mm -hmm. on the dance floor and there'd be like Dougie Fresh and 50 Cent and like all of these random people yeah, and it was a thing yeah. and you know make a long story short that got shut down I actually felt bad for for the neighbors like I got it at, at, on a certain level it was unfair and then on a certain level you know they wake up on Sunday morning to like do their jog at six in the morning and people are partying down on their <laughs> on their lawns um, <laughs> so I, I won't get into all of that but with that said people who a lot of it was from people who had just moved in and if you don't you you just know not to move next to a bar. I know it's not the House of Blues. I, you, they're like, oh, we didn't know it was a nightclub. Well, it's actually not, but just in New Orleans, if you have a place of business, there's gonna be some type of activity. It could be a restaurant, it could be um, a gallery, something you know, artistic and fun is going to go down because they're trying to have fun stuff because that's what we do. And um, so that got shut down and I moved to the High Hole Lounge and um, right, I, I no longer will play anywhere um, unless it is a, a full venue um, in a zoned place. So that's Tipitina's, that's House Blues, it's Howl Wolf, Three Keys, Ace Hotel, you know, it has to be because I'm, I, that was my last straw that El Patio is tired getting shut down in the middle of the set, having police show up on the dance floor, you know. It's like, I'm too old for this. <laughs> but it was fun when I was younger, <laughs> but no. Yeah. Do you miss um, your 
your hustle parties. I know you you stopped last year. <coughs> I've been it? I've been doing them in hustle infrequently. Yeah. And um, I also do okay. uh, monthly. My new big thing is mm -hmm. Soulful Takeover Party. That's oh, at yeah. One Eye Jacks. Yeah. Those have been fun. Yeah. So I'm still doing a lot mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, with all success, there are sacrifices, challenges. What does it cost you to be so DJ Soul Sister? Oh, wow. What has it cost me? Yeah. I don't know that. So, I mean, you've, got, you've, you've, you've had this really, you know, you, you travel, you do all these things. Um, any regrets, any, any wishes, anything you, you've changed or... Um, you do differently? Anything you do differently? Oh, man. She was, I'd have to think about that, honestly, because I was telling someone the other day, like, you know, everything on my path, I wouldn't have changed, even though there are some things on my path that have been weird you know or 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 different like my mother would have preferred that I once I was in college just go straight through and you know I actually um, left uh, college and took time off and wound up going back but you know that added years mm -hmm. to my thing you know stuff like that but I actually would not have changed that you know in hindsight actually Last question, and then we'll open it up. On social media, you recently posted that it's cuffing season. And what's the point of cuffing season if you don't have a cuffer? <laughs> Are we going to get a cuffing season playlist some kind of way, a, a set? Can we, can we get that? I have to be in the mood for that. And there are no ah. cuffies to be found, so <laughs> not at this time. Well, let us know if, um, if something changes. Um, any, any, did you think of that song yet that you, that you would have introduced yourself? Or what's your mood now? What song comes to your mind right now? Oh, man. Oh. The song that just came, that just popped in my mind right now is a song called Moon Rappin' by Brother Jack McDuff from 1970, 71. It's an instrumental Moon Rappin'. Song. Moon Rappin', yeah. I don't know why it okay. just popped up. We're gonna, <laughs> somebody find that. We'll listen to that on the way out. Um, by who? By who? Brother Jack McDuff. Brother Jack McDuff, Moon Rappin'. <laughs> now, somebody tweet that out. That's what we're... That's what we're going to go home with tonight. Any questions from the audience? Um, I was just going to ask, you know, you told the story about, you know, really getting started with your friends' boyfriends, you know, equipment and stuff like that. I think it made me think of, you know, what's one mistake you've made along the course of your career that has really taught you something important about it, like that you either can laugh about or it's just really important for you? Mm. <laughs> I know I've made some. I'm just trying to. A mistake, a mistake, a mistake, a mistake. La 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 la. 
Ooh, let me keep thinking about that. I'm, I'm seriously, because the funny thing, I don't, if, if there are mistakes, I'm probably, they're, they're not in my head as mistakes, right. you know? Um, <laughs> like, so before we started, I, I mentioned to y'all how the music was playing. That was a set, a live set called Boiler Room that's on YouTube. It's like the only live set that I know of that you can actually watch. It's like an hour and 30 minutes. And that was recorded live at the Three Keys Ace Hotel a year or two ago. It's gotten like, I don't know, 20,000. You know, it's yeah. like, and all the comments are, are really positive. Um, but as far as a mistake, like, When I did that show, people seemed to love that show, but I, w I had so much to drink that night. So that was a mistake. But it, it, it was a perfect <laughs> show. But the reason, I don't think of it as a mistake because I remember my story. I went to sound check, and they were like, you know, let's say I was supposed to sound check at 6.30, and I'm there ready. They're like, oh, well, the bands, they're, they're um they're late, so we're waiting for them, and doors are gonna open at seven. So basically, that means that they they want me to rush a sound check in five minutes, and I'm like, I don't think so, you know? So I made them hold the door. So maybe, you know, I don't look at those as mistakes. It's like, you honor me, I honor you. But I told my friend, I said, it was so stressful. I said, I'm, I'm drinking all night long. And I drank at dinner, and I showed up, and I was lit up. And if you watch it, I'm having so much fun. And people love this set so much. So it's a mistake for me to be like, yeah, I'm going to get wasted before my show. But um, I didn't care, and people seem to enjoy it. So I don't know. But I should probably watch. I should probably watch that. <laughs> No, to sell. Yeah. Well, no, okay. Related to that, I presented DJ Rich Medina at my hustle party when it was at the um, Hi Ho Lounge. And earlier that evening, I have a Mardi Gras crew, the crew of King James, mm -hmm. the um, super bad sex machine strollers. So it was Saturday, we rolled, and I thought I was good. I ate, I took a little nap in my van, and I, I DJed that same night and then went, and he was. You know, I did the first half of the night, he did the second night. I guess I had so much to drink. I passed, <laughs> I passed out um, as soon as he started, apparently. So that's a mistake. That's a mistake. I don't recommend that people do that. But I thought it was okay. But, I, you know, but that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen a lot. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> well, if you have one more story about being wasted, then it probably happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's an old P-Funk story that <laughs> I, I saw somebody else's hand. I, I have spent many, many, many nights with British Cameroon wasting oh. babies and our family. Um, Melissa, I think that um, you are different because you're a woman, you're black, you're from New Orleans, and you have a, enough age to have gone through many years of experiences. You have a very unique you're not so much studying music, you are living the music. So my question is, when is the 
Um, well, thank you. Wow. Um, I feel that personally, I have a lot to share with with people, even from the standpoint of how I grew up, which again, very sheltered, very painfully, painfully shy. Mm -hmm. um, I mm. want to tell that story. Uh, I first want to tell, finish my thesis, which is dealing with um, 1980s go-go culture of Washington, mm. D.C. Mm. And then I'll get to personal stuff, which involves a lot of exposing, which can be dangerous and, 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 and hard. Mm. But that's something I had thought about, so, so thank you. And yeah, being, being a woman is a huge part of that. Like I just was talking about the boiler room set and how mm -hmm. people on YouTube, you can look at all the comments and it's all people like, oh my God, this is amazing. And one woman posted, she said, um, man, she is really doing it. And a man commented under her and said, yes, he sure is. And uh, meaning, you know, mm -hmm. I am a man because of whatever reason. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, you know, say whatever you mm -hmm. want. The, the standard of quality of DJing, you always see it as mess. So if you want to call me a man, then go for it. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. care what you yeah. have to say. Do it. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. But, um, but it's, it's. It's interesting. And related to that, I try not to, I never promote myself as a female mm -hmm. DJ. Mm -hmm. um, I represent for women at all times. But you never hear anybody saying, Grandmaster Flash is the greatest male DJ mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. Jam Master J is the number one male DJ. You never hear anybody mm -hmm. say that. So I get away with with doing that, but I represent for women all the time because you have a lot of extra stuff to deal with as a woman behind the tables. Mm -hmm. But you do it so well. Thank you. You do it so well. <laughs> I too have been at many parties lit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so um, embarrassed that I the music. Like, My mother can never see this tape. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an only child, by the way? I'll have a, a half-sister. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Other questions? Yeah. <laughs> one more. We'll take one more. Megan, do you have a question? What's your favorite DJ story? Like, all time. You've got so many It made me think of an interesting story <laughs> that could be related to a mistake, to answer your question. So, um, so from 2008 to 2010, I was the main stage DJ at Essence Festival. So not the Super Lounge, but like on the main stage. So mm -hmm. I would you know, play before Janet Jackson and Beyonce on the main stage. And the second year, 20, 2009, 
I had a makeup artist who did, you know, so my first set, I would play before and between all of the main stage acts. And my first set was like from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And then the festival kicked off at 7 p.m. So it's like 5.15, 5.30, and my makeup artist, who I would hire, uh, did not show up. And, and I keep calling her, and I'm like, where are you? Where are you? She's like, I'm right outside. And, and then it's like 5.45, and the handlers are getting ready to bring me on stage, and I have no makeup artist, and I have no makeup. And, and it, to not sound vain, but when you're on that stage and you've got jumbotrons pumping you out to like 20,000 people, you want a little coverage, you know, mm -hmm. and I have some problem areas. So I, I, there, there was, there was no coverage. I went on the stage. I, I, I kind of, you know, felt very self-conscious about myself. I did my set. I was very sad. And um, so then the festival starts. The announcer, um, I think it was Jonathan Slocum that year, is doing his thing. And as I'm being, before I'm walked off the stage. A man comes to me and he says, man, great job. You did a great job. And I never looked up. I was just like this. I never looked up to say thank you. I said thank you. But my eyes never met him. And then he walked away. And then the young lady who volunteered as my assistant, she's like, oh, my God, that was Idris Elba. And I'm like, I don't know, because I never looked, my eyes never, because I felt so self-conscious. So if I could change anything, it would, it would be to um, not worry about the body positivity issues that I had uh, growing up. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I just look like whatever. Like, who cares, you know? So because I was dealing with that, I missed my chance of one-on-one -on -one eye contact with Idris Elba, who <laughs> came to my table to talk to me. And I had no idea, you know, couldn't tell you. If it wasn't for uh, my assistant, I would not have known. I was just like, thank you. Interesting story. Not a happy story, but interesting. <laughs> well, thank you for um, being vulnerable and sharing with us and for giving us so many great parties in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. And um, I know you're going to keep it going. Where, what's next? I know you have a Frankie Beverly yeah. something Saturday. Yeah, so right. I love telling stories about music, and Ace Hotel is letting me do these events where I tell stories. So mm -hmm. this Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at 3K's Ace Hotel, myself and my special guest, LBJ, the host of mm -hmm. WGNO's News with a Twist, we're going to unpack the love affair between uh, New Orleans and <laughs> Mays featuring Frankie Beverly, who, you know, Frankie Beverly's from Philadelphia. They kind of made their way in California, but somehow, and we're gonna talk about this, there are actually reasons why 
uh, New Orleans has adopted them. When I was little, I literally thought that Fra Frankie Beverly and Mays was a New Orleans band. Like, that's how serious mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. And today is November the 15th. Um, there's the album Mays Live in New Orleans, mm -hmm. recorded at the Sanger, 1980, November 14th and 15th. So um, we're going to talk about all of that this Saturday. And then after we're done, DJ Captain Charles is going to do an all Mays and Frankie Beverly set, happy wow. hour set. So, wow. So yeah. Is it a cost? Is it free? Oh, it's free. Oh, okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so we'll know if you're not at Words and Music on Saturday <laughs> where you are. If y'all don't see me, though. <laughs> Um, this has been great. This has really been great. I look forward to reading that book and seeing you finish your thesis. We're all cheering you on to finish that thesis and to um, add your voice to the much needed, um, the written canon as well. It's, it's, it's very important. And it's interesting that you said that because earlier today we had Christina Robinson here, and one of the things she left us with was kind of um, deconstructing what it means to be an intellectual, um, and that there needed to be space for everybody to um, have a process of learning and teaching and telling um, stories um, without kind of the hierarchy. And so um, you have just confirmed what some of the things she was talking about earlier. So we thank you. We thank all of you for coming out on this cold night. Um, immediately after, there is a party um, at Victory's on Barone. I think it's walking distance from here. If you have not had a drink from Victory's, you should. You owe it to yourself to have one. Yes. Um, um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you. I think we are wrapping. Oh no, moon wrapping. Moon wrapping. Yeah, you got it. Oh, the ad. The ad. I was like, that's it. Here we go.